Happy Valentine's Day. Have you done anything yet? That's everybody's question. What have you done? What have you done for your significant other? I don't know. Isn't Valentine's Day like a dating thing? After that, it just becomes a thing, right? And you work out a mutual agreement eventually. Hey, if you don't do anything for me, I won't do anything for you. Does that sound good? Yeah, yeah, I like that idea. And that's the way it goes. Valentine's Day is a hallmark holiday. Always has been, always will be. It's a nice time to, I guess, maybe it's a forced reminder to do something, isn't it? At least have that conversation. You good? Yeah. You good? Sure. Yeah. Is that good enough for a relationship? I don't know. We'll talk in a little bit. I think after 21 years of marriage, I have finally learned one... Well, no. My wife's taught me many, many things. But I've learned one thing in particular. And I'm not even sure where this epiphany came from. And it's the importance of trying. We'll talk about that maybe in an hour from now. Do guys realize how important it is just to try? Guys hate trying. You know why? Because you can fail. And why would we ever want to try something that we fail at? So we're reluctant to do that. But for women, if you try, even if you fail miserably, they love it. It's, that, is, that is fantastic stuff. And the male brain cannot figure that one out. And the female brain cannot figure out how the male brain cannot figure that out. Women are smarter than men. I'm convinced. Always have been. We're not very bright. But that's the whole thing. If you try, you actually accomplish more than you think. And after 21 years of marriage, that's what I think I've learned. Am I right? If you can pass on some kind of romantic thing, we're going to copycat off each other today, some romantic thing that you've done for your significant other that has worked very, very well, shh, we won't tell. We won't say, hey, guess where I found this out. You can pretend that it, you came up with it, you get that done, but whatever that romantic thing is that worked out really, really well, if you could email that to mike at 980cfpl.ca. This is not just for me. I've already worked it out. We already had the you good, you good conversation. And I tried. I got perfume for my wife, even though I sloppily gave it to her because I left it on top of my bag and went out shoveling the driveway. And she found it and kind of went, why do you have women's perfume on your bag? And I said, because it's for you. Happy Valentine's Day. Ta-da! So if you could send along whatever has worked for you in terms of a romantic gesture, we will... Put all these together, and I'll make sure and spill them out, and we can all benefit from them. Doesn't matter. Guys, girls, doesn't matter. Even if it's a romantic thing you did for your cat, doesn't matter. Email mike at 980cfpl.ca. We have a lot to get to on the show today in about a half hour from now, roughly a half hour from now. We're going to be talking about Lyme disease. Have you ever spoken with someone who has struggled with Lyme disease? At the moment, Sue Faber and Jennifer Kravis are on their way to London. They'll be speaking at Centennial Hall this afternoon, but they're going to stop by London Live before they actually go and do their speaking engagement. And both of them have had Lyme disease. But have you ever actually talked with somebody? What, you mean the disease with the tick, with the, yeah, and don't don't just flick it off, make sure you pull the head out with the tweezers? Yeah. 
But no, no, not like that, because it's not always like that. It's not always as easy as, well, I went walking in the bush, and I uh, found this tick on the back of my leg, and then there was a bullseye on the back of my leg, this big reddish circle. So I knew that I was perhaps at risk for Lyme disease. That's not what it is. That's not what we're talking about. This is the kind of Lyme disease where you don't feel right, where things aren't working right, and you can't figure out what the heck's going on. And you go and you seek the help of medical professionals, and they diagnose 17 different things because they can't truly figure out what's going on. They're just diagnosing the symptoms that they see. They're trying to help you out, and it doesn't work. And then all of a sudden, you have yourself a big-time issue because you've been diagnosed with something you don't actually have. You feel horrible. And you lose years of your life feeling horrible. Well, what if all of a sudden you weren't just doing that for yourself? What if all of a sudden it was happening for your kids? And what if it was happening to your kids? And you know that they hadn't been diagnosed with Lyme disease. That's the kind of thing that we're going to talk about. It's a scary sort of thing, but it appears that you can pass Lyme disease on to your children. So that's what we're going to discuss in a half hour from now. We are also going to, a little later on on the show, be able to talk about something that becomes, uh, well, pretty important. Um, The decision on Ryan Jarvis by the Supreme Court of Canada. This had to go all the way from a London courtroom to the Supreme Court of Canada. This is the guy with the pen camera and the videos that were found on his computer of students in his class. And it was ruled in London that, you know, this didn't appear to have any kind of sexual connection to it. And it was appealed a couple of times, boom, 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 all the way up to the Supreme Court of Canada. And bang, we've got a conviction today. So we're going to talk about that, but we're also going to get to consent. If you are not a 20-something right now, then I think we all feel a little bit better about things like consent. I would not want to be a 20-something or 30-something. But I'm echoing words that my dad said to me when I was a 20-something. I wouldn't want to be in your shoes with all the things out there today. Yeah, well, I wouldn't want to be in my shoes if I was in my 20s now because of all the concerns and interpretations and conversations that seem to surround consent and not, not really completely understanding it. So we're going to talk about the Ryan Jarvis situation, but we're also going to talk about consent. And we're going to get some great help on this from Barb McGuire from Western University. But speaking of Western University, let's begin the show today talking about FOCO and homecoming and the fact that Western is trying to figure out how to handle this. And take a look. It's February. We're a long way away from homecoming of next year, but for years now. We have not wanted to see large collections of purple-clad 20-somethings on Bruffdale, people falling off roofs. It happened again. There was a video this year, and it was a guy who was being encouraged to jump off the roof, and he did. First of all, he was on the roof. He appeared to be intoxicated, and he jumped off, and I think he broke his jaw, his arm, and his hip. Bad idea. Terrible idea. And it was years ago now that London Police Service had an information session. They brought the media. They brought other individuals in. They had video. And one of their strongest messages was, please stay off the roof. Please. Please stay off the roof. That's all they wanted. 
And yet we have these issues. We have charges laid. We had, what, 20,000 people on Brofdale a little while ago. So what exactly can be done? How do you address this? Well, there are a lot of different things. First off, Western moved homecoming. Okay. They didn't move it out of the city. They didn't move it to now. They just moved it a little bit. But somebody got the brilliant idea of FOCO. And had it not had that name, I don't think it catches on. Fake homecoming? I don't think it catches on if you can't call it FOCO. If they couldn't come up with some little acronym that worked out really well, I don't think this is a popular thing. I don't think it even happens. Maybe a gathering of individuals once, and then people went, that was dumb, let's go do something else. But it didn't happen that way. It caught on. It ignited. But this isn't only a problem in London. This is a problem at colleges and universities everywhere. In a moment, we are going to speak with the vice president of finance and operations with Western University because they are targeting this. They are trying to figure out what to do. And we're going to ask what angle they're coming at this from. That's next on London Live on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. So let's examine FOCO. Homecoming. Some of the issues that we have had in the community. We've had a lot of people expressing opinions about this, but it comes down to the fact that university students are going to party. And now they just have one that gets out of hand. And the problem is there are students that come from other places. And we do wind up using a lot of money and a lot of people power and first responders and police officers. And... We're trying to figure out how to make this stop or how at least to have it behave better. They had Purple Fest last year at Western. I'm not sure how much that took away from Bruffdale because at one point, didn't we have 20,000 people on that street? Joining us right now to help us out with this just happens to be the vice president of operations and finance with Western University. We want to thank Lynn Logan for joining us. Lynn, maybe we can just kind of start with how you're seeing this at Western and maybe the angle that you're approaching it from. Well, I mean, I I think, Mike, everyone recognizes this as a uh, very complex problem that is going to require a coordinated response from the entire community and the levers that they need to bring to the table um, to drive the change. So certainly I think bylaw comes with um, certain things that they can do, fire, police, Certainly Western is now considering use of um, the student code of conduct and extending that to cover um, this unsanctioned street party specifically. Uh, One thing we're very careful that we don't want to do is get into community policing. But I think where we have an issue for the community that is as large as it is, we are going to consider how our code of student conduct might be able to apply. Uh, Certainly we have alternative programming that is another element, as well as education and communication um, that Western can do with its students, with the community. Lynn, where can the code of conduct extend to? How, how would that work with a student that, say, was involved in something that maybe they shouldn't have been involved in? 
So, so right now, the Code of Student Conduct um, only extends to activities that occur on Western's campus. Unless there is a criminal behavior, for example, sexual violence, that might be able to extend to that. So what we're looking at doing is um, for the adjacency of the unsanctioned street party, which is directly adjacent to Western's campus, we're certainly not extending it into to the entire community, but rather specifically to deal with this um, particular issue, particularly where it ends up being a safety concern for other students or the community. So in other words, just kind of, just to say it, on Broffdale? Correct. Okay. Is there any concern about any other area outside of that particular street? We would not be looking to extend the code um, to get into community policing and police other areas of the community. We're looking specifically to deal with this because of the extreme case of Bruffdale. We're talking right now about the situation regarding homecoming and what's become known as FOCO with Lynn Logan, who is the Vice President of Operations and Finance with Western University. What kind of communications have you had with the community on kind of tackling this? Well, we're still in in early days of the task force in terms of the two committees that have been struck as part of that, and um, I've also struck an internal working group at Western. So we're early days. We're developing our strategy, but we certainly are developing that long list of stakeholders um, that we do want to engage and get their feedback, their input, as well as update them on where we're going. We um, have two meetings coming up with our local councillor, Phil Squire, on February 25th, one, a meeting with him in the morning just with the individual members of the task force from Western, as well as then um, a public meeting in his um, riding with with that community partners in the evening on that same day. So those have actually been set up actually a couple weeks ago. We'll certainly be looking to engage with the Bruffdale Neighborhood Association and other neighborhood associations that are around Western. Uh, We'll be looking to tell them where we are, um, get their feedback, their input, and certainly allow them an opportunity to engage us in that in that process. It might be a, a touchy thing, but have you considered moving the date of homecoming or changing that, or, or is the fear that the students would just, you know, wait for whatever one was not considered homecoming and create FOCO then? Well, you know, I, I think the FOCO certainly there was an issue about the move of homecoming, and Western really was pressured to move homecoming uh, at the start of that unsanctioned street party on Bruffdale a number of years ago. That was one of the things we did in response to requests from police in the community was to move our date. So I, I don't know right now. In the next couple of years, our dates have already been set because it's around a home football game. You know, I don't want to say never, but I what I would say also is that our resources would be very very strained to try and manage both um, the Bruffdale event and Purple Fest, our alternative programming, as well as uh, homecoming and do that in a way that um, was useful for all parties. So I think for the foreseeable future, short term, we're not looking at uh, moving it back, but I, I don't believe that if we don't have movement, that it isn't something that we might not consider moving forward, but I can make no commitment on that. Right. Do you wish that it had never been moved in the first place? No, I, I can't say that because I think um, homecoming actually has been on multiple dates for a number of years throughout Western's history, and actually the date that it is on now is the most common date. 
back in history for Western. So I, I can't speak to the to the past, Mike. I, I have to really move forward with what I'm dealing with today. Sure. Lynn Logan joining us, Vice President of Operations and Finance with Western University. Lynn, just one last thing, and that is discussions with other universities, because we know this is not just only Western students. Hey, students are well-connected. They can find out what's happening in Guelph next weekend and what's happening at McMaster the weekend after, and then we're going to go off to Windsor, and we're going to have a great time everywhere. Is there ever any discussion amongst universities about perhaps sanctions for people who may come in from other cities, from other universities, and be some of those people who are causing the biggest issues? So I'm, I'm glad you've raised that issue. Not that we can get to the sanctions piece right away, but actually tomorrow, um, Laurier and Western have actually um, joined together to share the first uh, full day consultation and dialogue with respect to unsanctioned and illegal street parties. It's being held in Laurier. Nine uh, universities are attending, along with their um, city partners, as well as uh, at least five or six of the city police partners as well. So we are actually all going to Laurier uh, tomorrow to have a dialogue on just what's worked in the past, what hasn't worked, what are our strategies moving forward. As to whether we ever get to be able to use sanctions for other students attending, I think um, that's probably a little bit premature at this stage, but uh, we certainly have opened up the lines of communication in a very large way. And we're not only learning from our partners within the province where it has truly become an issue. This is not an issue just for London and for Western. It is it is a, a North American phenomenon, and we're also trying to learn as much as we can from U.S. Uh, partners as well, and have had a number of conference calls, with, including our city and emergency community partners with, stake, with other uh, universities in the U.S. in terms of how they have dealt uh, with these uh, unsanctioned and illegal gatherings. How did the Laurier discussion get started? Um, so, while well, Western certainly has been reaching out to those uh, close around us who have a number of things. So, David McMurray, their VP of Students, was actually here for a meeting um, in December, and it was my idea to try and get all of the um, those in the province that might be willing to come together, and David was uh, offered to host it. So, we were thrilled, and we moved to that pretty quickly. So, will this bring just Western and Laurier together, or will there be representatives from other universities as well? So, there are nine universities actually. So Waterloo, Queens, Laurier, McMaster, Ottawa, Brock, Carleton, Guelph, and Western. And the hope is that you're just bringing out ideas and who knows what's going to happen. That's correct. You know, certainly talking about what works, what doesn't work, and and what strategies we're looking to deploy moving forward. Lynn, thanks so much for the time today. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Mike. Lynn Logan, who is the Vice President of Finance and Operations at Western University. So, take a look at that right there. I mean, they are getting to that point of let's involve everybody. That's that's fantastic because I don't know the numbers on it. I don't know that you can know the numbers on it. I do know that university students are pretty well connected. And it reminds me of if you are a 20-something and you live in certain American cities, I don't even know whether it's all American cities, but happy hour becomes a great big thing. Happy hour can do some nutty stuff, and you can jump from bar to bar, and if you know that Happy Fridays has a pretty happy Friday from 9 to 10 where they have buck a beer, buck a shot, whatever it is, whatever their special is, half-price wings, well then from 9 to 10 you go there. And you know that Dilly Dally's 
from 10 until 11 has 250 pitchers. Well, then from 10 to 11, you go there. And that's what it reminds me of. And there are people who are in their 20s in the U.S. that can do like that. And you don't spend very much money and you go and you have your night out. You can do that with universities. Oh, well, this weekend, Guelph has this. Let's go there. This weekend, Western has this. We're in London. And then this weekend, we've got Hamilton and McMaster and Mohawk doing this. Fantastic. Woo. Rock on. And that's where you go. And that becomes the biggest issue. And when you are somewhere where you do not face any kind of punishment, what are you more apt to do? Let's climb on the roof. Let's kick in this window. You're more apt to do stuff like that. So that's what we have to address. Let's continue this conversation after news with Jacqueline LaBelle. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Let's talk a little bit more about FOCO and homecoming and how to deal with this. Because the idea that students party is not new. This has been going on for a long, long time. I have to apologize to people we may have lived beside when I went to Western. We didn't have a lot of parties, but we did have a couple of big ones. And looking back on that, I would hate to have had me as a neighbor. People would be rummaging through my my bushes and stuff. We had people outside. I mean, they got to be too big. That was the problem. You didn't know everybody there. I mean, we lived in one spot where we got a visit from police. Why was that? Well, because two guys who had stayed over, I don't even know who they were. I don't even think they stayed over. I think they slept in the garage, woke up at 6 o'clock in the morning or were still up at 6 o'clock in the morning and found some golf clubs in our garage and decided to tee up golf balls from the front lawn and drive them down the street. Yeah, that brought a visit from police. By then, those guys were gone and we were left to go, yeah, we had a party last night, uh... Yeah, I don't I don't know who those guys were. It wasn't any of us. Sorry. It's been happening forever. So do we do we look at this and say, "Hey, something's got to be done here. We we've, we've got to make this stop. We've got to make this change." Let's open up the phones. 519-643-2222. That's 519-643-2222. And if you have any ideas, one was floated around the newsroom, and I thought it was absolutely brilliant. And I want to get to that. It's courtesy of Devin Peacock. And I thought this was a fantastic idea. I'll get to that in just a minute. But what would you like to see done? How do we approach this? Is it up to Western? Is it up to the police? 519-643-2222. Joining us right now is Richard. Hey, Richard. Good afternoon, Mike. How are you this afternoon? I'm looking for a voice of reason on this. Well, I'll tell you, Lynn was right. This is a very complicated issue, Mike, and I certainly don't have the answers to it, and I'm not going to pretend I do have the answers. But I know, Mike, a few years back, right, in Kingston, Ontario, Queen's University, right, They took the unusual step and the extreme measure, and they had no choice but banning homecoming altogether. Now, whether that worked out for them or not over the last few years, I don't know. You know, Mike, I've been in London, Ontario now for the last seven years, and I realize that a lot of things can change in seven years. But for most of my life, right, Mike, I lived in three university cities, Winnipeg, 
Saskatoon and Regina. And I can never remember, Mike, their homecomings, right, ever getting to the point, whether it be the U of R or the U of S or the U of M in Winnipeg. I can never remember, Mike, that their homecomings got to the point where vandalism, right, wanton destruction was being done. But I just don't understand why are they having this problem here in Ontario, Mike, in your opinion? Well, as we heard from Lynn, you know, as much as we can say it is Ontario, they're looking at issues in the United States as well, where they're okay, that, well, that don't surprise me there. But I'm talking, I'm talking about the Canadian Midwest. I've never even heard of it in Alberta and BC ever coming to that point, Mike. I don't know that it is or isn't happening in Alberta and BC, so I can't speak to that. But if it is Ontario, then yeah, well, it be, it comes down to a respect problem. Any time that you are willing to damage some some other property or you're willing to do something stupid. It, it comes down to a respect thing, and I think that that's something that our whole society is guilty of. We've got a lack of respect for a lot of stuff. Well, that's true. We do, Mike. But it, like Lynn said, it's a very complicated issue, right? And I feel for the people, though, that who do live on Fleming Drive and that, that they have to go through that year after year. Something definitely has to be done. But anyways, on this note, I want to say, Marilyn... Happy Valentine's Day, Marilyn, and I always enjoy listening to you, and I enjoyed listening to you yesterday, having the final say on an issue. It's nice to listen to good old-fashioned common sense in 2019. Have a good day, Mike. Have a great day, Richard, and magically, let's pass those Valentine's Day wishes on to Marilyn. Happy Valentine's Day, Marilyn. Marilyn, can you hear us? I think we may have lost Marilyn. Maybe I can get her back. Marilyn? Happy oh. Valentine's Day. Oh, well, the same to you, my dear. Uh, the best gift you can give it would give to leave for Valentine's would be, well, would be, you know, when my husband was alive, I'm kind of befuddled here. I'm trying to eat and the birds are making too much noise. Anyways, um, uh, is breakfast in bed? Is breakfast in bed? Yes. And any particular kind of breakfast? Well, I like um, an egg sunny side up, and I like crisp bacon and toast with peanut butter on, coffee, and juice. Marilyn, that sounds like a great breakfast. I, I hope once again you are able to get that kind of a thing on Valentine's Day. I've even offered to pay. You'd offer to pay for that. You know, I I bet there's an app somewhere that offers... I'm going to look up and see whether there's a delivery for breakfast in bed, because this world is crazy enough. I bet you we could find something like that. (laughs) Well, look, as far as the university is concerned, I graduated music from there. And uh, I was full of beans when I was young, just like you with your... Hitting the golf balls down the street. Now, I wasn't the guy hitting the golf balls. I want to make that clear, but I was kind of responsible because we were renting the house at which the golf balls were being hit down the street. So well, I'll take responsibility. I knew you were an angel. <laughs> I don't know about that, but I wasn't hitting golf balls down the street at they're, least. They're going to have to do something, and what I just don't know. What, I just, I just don't know what they can do because they can't have all this uh, trouble on Brusdale Street like they had last fall. There's going to have to be something done. What? I don't know whether the student council can get through to them. Yeah. You see, there's a lot of people, a lot of kids, pardon me, 
that come in from the outside. That's the whole thing, and that is what Lynn Logan was talking about, that they are having a meeting tomorrow. So maybe this is where we do start to see something happen. And we'll get into details on that in just a minute, because if you bring together all of the universities, and if they've all got similar problems, and you can get together, and you can create some kind of sanctions, then all of a sudden, we've got something. Marilyn, thanks for the call. we a good university. That's it. Happy Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day, Day and um, you just take care of yourself. You take care of yourself, and I'm right now I'm I'm going through the app store to see if I can find breakfast in bed delivery, and if not, it's a company I think one of us should start. Oh, gosh, wouldn't that be great? It would be fantastic. I've even offered to pay for that. Well, hey, that's if you're willing to pay for it, then that means other people are willing to pay for it. I think we could be on to something, you and me. Hang on. <laughs> Take care, Marilyn. <laughs> All right, dear. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye-bye. So breakfast in bed. Just give me a second while I, I pump this in, and let's see. Breakfast in bed in the App Store, and has someone created, I guess I have to say, breakfast in bed delivery. Have we got any? No results. Marilyn, floor's open. It hasn't been done yet. We could get this done. I do want to bring up the idea that came up in the newsroom. We are still going to talk Lyme disease. We'll do that at 210. We'll do that at 210 this afternoon because we've got a couple of speakers in London today. And if you missed it off the start of the show, this is talking about a diagnosis of something that can't be diagnosed. Everything is going wrong. Every diagnosis doesn't make sense. You're hearing that it's chronic fatigue syndrome. You're hearing that it's fibromyalgia. You're he- and it's, it, none of it fits. And then all of a sudden, your kids are experiencing these crazy symptoms. Turns out you can, it seems, pass Lyme disease onto your children. And that's why we have two individuals, Sue Faber and Jennifer Kravis, in London today talking about this. We're going to talk with them, and we'll do that at about 2.10. But I want to continue on with this because there was an idea proposed in the newsroom. I do want to get your thoughts on how far you should be able to go in terms of punishment, not for throwing chairs off a balcony, but for students misbehaving because students have misbehaved for decades Students always will misbehave because that's the kind of age they are. Some of them don't even see it as misbehaving. So how far do you go with this? This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. We're going to talk more FOCO in just a moment. Phone lines are open, 519-643-2222. How far can you go to punish a university student from another town is something I want to get into. But the other thing we were talking about off the start of London Live was the most romantic thing you have ever done so that we can kind of piggyback off you. What do you think? If you've forgotten to do anything romantic or you have nothing in your brain that leads you to romantic thoughts, you just you get lost Maybe we could piggyback off things that have worked well for you. Uh, Email mike at 980cfpl.ca. I just got an email, and I'm I'm sorry, Steve. Is this true? This I I don't I don't know. I this is good, but am I telling a true story here? Steve says I won over my current wife by buying an inflatable mattress. 12 roses, and a picnic lunch. I don't know if he bought the picnic lunch, but it says that's what he had. Before Valentine's Day, I went out into the backyard, and we have a shed. Inside, it is heated, and I inflated the mattress, and I put down the bouquet of roses, and I put down the picnic lunch, 
And I blindfolded her and took her outside. We went into the shed, and as she sat down and started to enjoy the picnic lunch, I picked up a violin and began to serenade her. I guess you have to be able to play the violin to make it work, but I can, and it worked. We've been married for seven years. Wow, that's that's a... That's a really interesting thing. How far into a relationship do you have to be, Steve, in order to be willing to give that one a shot? That's my only question. That's not a first date kind of thing. That's that's not a hey, I'm the inflatable mattress. That's kind of presumptuous, isn't it? Just just a little. So there's the first idea. I can't live up to that at all. I bought a bottle of perfume. I sent a nice text am i on the right track no inflatable mattresses and 12 roses let's go to the phones 519-643-2222 mark what do you have for us hello i have a comment about the focum please i think that instead of trying to crack down on them we should sanction it and monetize it okay so many people there you got twenty thousand people running around think of all that money that's being lost let's charge them admission and let's set it up and, you know, legitimize it. And it take, well, you'll take some of the cool factor away from it, the jumping off the buildings and whatnot. So <laughs> let's get money from them. Let's make some money off of it. They tried to do that, I think, with Purple Fest last year. And some people did go to Purple Fest. But Purple Fest was positioned at a time of the day when you could go to Purple Fest, you could take part in the bands, and then you could head back to Brofdale. So what do you think? Do we put up a gate at the entrance to Brofdale on Richmond and, and we charge admission? Why not? Let's get money out of their pockets. And I think if you charged admission, I don't know what the legalities are in terms of putting a gate at the start of a street. Because one of the issues they have is they can't get first responders down that street when there's 20,000 bodies there wearing purple T-shirts. But, yeah, okay, and that would probably keep a lot of them away. Yeah, they'll figure it out. The money will make them figure it out. I like this. Monetize it. Mark, thank you for the idea. Thank you. Here's the idea that came out of the newsroom, courtesy of Devin Peacock. I'm giving him full credit for this, because I think this is brilliant. So, the day that FOCO exists, you go to Brofdale with all kinds of family-friendly stuff. Let's talk clowns and face painting. No bouncy castles, because... 20-somethings love their bouncy castles. But face painting and a petting zoo, maybe with fake animals so that we don't risk hurting the real ones should 20,000 people show up. But you bring in all kinds of activities that act as 20-something repellent. Huh? I think that's absolutely brilliant. Face painting, they don't like to have their faces painted. Uh, fake petting zoo. Uh, what else could we put? Devin will come up with a great long list, and I look forward to hearing that list. But I think that's great, where you beat them to the punch. You go to Bruffdale, because here's the thing about Bruffdale. It has so much student housing that it overwhelms the rest of the street. I don't know if there's another street around that would be the same, unless you went over to Fleming Drive around Fanshawe and... You're not going to make the trek from Western in droves of 20,000 to Fleming Drive. That's not going to happen. So this is the one and only street. So if you put up family-friendly activities, a little carnival maybe, with little tiny rides that 20-somethings couldn't fit into, huh? What do you think? 
I think that's brilliant. I think that's definitely a way that could go. Now, here's the other end of things that I want to touch on before we close out this topic entirely. And please, feel free to offer up your suggestions for this. Mark says monetize it. Devin said family-friendly. That'll scare them away. There's nowhere else for them to go. But here's the other angle. And this one is absolutely legitimate. They are looking at the fact that this happens everywhere. And now we've got a meeting of nine different universities that we found out about that is taking place tomorrow at Laurier. And if you missed Lynn Logan, who is the vice president of operations and finance with Western, she was talking about this. They had someone, a representative, down to London, actually, and they were from Laurier. And the conversation started from there. Hey, what if we could get everybody together? And so they're having this at Laurier tomorrow. Nine universities in the province of Ontario are taking part. And they are all concerned about street parties, and they're all concerned about the safety of kids, and they're certainly concerned about students from one university going to another university where if you mess up, they can't threaten you with suspension. They can't threaten you with expulsion. They can't threaten you with any sanctions at all. You're from Guelph. You're from Ottawa. You're from Windsor. We can't do anything. But what if you were able to band together? Now, as Lynn pointed out, it's way too early to talk sanctions, but at least they're having this conversation. And that's ultimately the way that this has to go. You have to find a way, and Mark had the perfect suggestion, you have to find a way to give them a consequence. Right now, there is no consequence. Everybody works best with consequence. If I do A, then B takes place. And if I know that, if I don't like B, I'm not going to do A. That's kind of how our justice system works. If you commit a crime, you are going to go to jail. That's the A and the B. I don't want to go to jail. Therefore, I'm going to do just about everything I can not to commit a crime. You have to do it the same way. Right now, FOCO is just a great big celebration. And I know Western tried Purple Fest, but they were just adding to the celebration. This is like creating Disney World. How do you use Disney World? You wake up in the morning and you say, you know, we're going to spend the morning at Magic Kingdom, and then we're going to have lunch, and then we're going to spend the afternoon at Animal Kingdom. So on FOCO, you know, in the morning, we're going to go to Bruffdale, and then we're going to go over to Purple Fest, and then afterward, we're going to go to Bruffdale. It's like Disney. And you can't have that. As much as they tried to take things away, I still think that was missing the mark. What you have to do is give them the A and the B. If you want to have some kind of celebration, that's fine. It can't be 20,000 people deep. We can't have this. So it's not happening on Bruffdale. Find your own spots. And police are going to be able to go around and shut down keg parties. That's just what happens. It's, it's a day like St. Patrick's Day. I think that's exactly what FOCO has become. And we're not going to change that. But in the end, there has to be a B. There has to be a way that students say it. And Lynn Logan did bring it up, saying they're looking at the review of the Code of Conduct. They don't want to become a community police organization. That's not what they're trying to do. But if they can put it into that student Code of Conduct, you're getting an, if I do A, I get B. And that's the only way to solve this. Coming up, we're going to talk about Lyme disease. We're also going to talk about consent. Do you truly understand consent? I don't think I do. And I'm getting up there. We'll tell you what else is coming up in just a moment. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. 
Two more ideas have come in, not for romance. We don't seem to be very romantic, and I'll uh, put myself in that category. But two more ideas have come in for FOCO and dealing with the mob on Broughtdale. Eugene has my favorite email in a long time. Eugene writes, build a wall. That's the best. That's, yes. Yes, Eugene. Let's fund the wall. Let's shut down the city until somebody funds our wall. Yes. And Matt said, here's the thing. There is a disconnect. Why don't they go and get a couple of students who have taken part in these sorts of FOCO celebrations the last couple of years and put them on their committee? They seem to be out of touch with how students actually behave. Huh? I like that. And I believe there's some truth to that. Let's leave that there. We'll talk FOCO on another day. Next up, Jacqueline LaBelle will have news, and then we will get into Lyme disease. This is not something that you mess around with, and you may know someone who is suffering from Lyme disease right now and doesn't know it and keeps getting diagnosed with all kinds of stuff, and their life is hell. We'll get to the details. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. So we have two very special individuals who are in London today, and they are here because they want to make sure that a message is being spread to people who need to hear it. And that message deals with Lyme disease. Think about what you know about Lyme disease. What do you know? Well, when I go hiking, I should wear long pants because there are ticks in those woods over yonder. And if I walk through, I could be bitten by a tick and perhaps contract Lyme disease. You know what Lyme disease is? No. And I don't know a lot about it either. But it is something that can be so incredibly debilitating. Pretty soon on Fresh Radio, you are going to be hearing new tracks from Avril Lavigne. And she went through Lyme disease. And this album that is, I think, going to come out hasn't come out yet, has it? But it will detail a lot of struggle that she went through. And this is legitimate struggle. This is a disease that is so difficult to pinpoint that it is often diagnosed as so many different things. And you would think, yeah, well, I knew because I had the tick. It doesn't always present itself quite so openly. And that's why it is fantastic to have with us, as they drive into London, Sue Faber and Jennifer Kravis. They have started a website that is called Lime Hope, and you can find it at limehope.ca. And we are able to catch up with Sue and Jennifer. They are speaking in London today and talk a little bit about their experiences and something even more important. That Lyme disease is not something a person contracts and it just stays with them. It appears that you have the ability to pass this on to your children. Joining us right now as they drive in, Sue Faber and Jennifer Kravis. Sue and Jennifer, thank you for joining us on London Live today. Thank you very much for having us on your show. You're bringing a really important message, and you're talking about something that both of you probably know a whole lot better than you wish you did. Can you tell us, maybe Jennifer, to start with, getting Lyme disease, being diagnosed with Lyme disease, what that's like? 
So being diagnosed with Lyme disease is actually a real challenge in Canada and in many other parts of the world. I was given a diagnosis of fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue syndrome when I was 36 years old and became suddenly bedridden within a matter of months. I was told it was incurable and I was left unable to care for myself or my kids. And it took me six years and a lot of money to finally get properly diagnosed in the U.S. So in other words, people were just ready to say, hey, this is what you have. There's nothing we can do about it. Sorry. And at the same time, how were you feeling? So it seemed like every single day a different part of my body was falling apart. My first symptom was double vision. I had symptoms like burning, stabbing pain, twitching, weird cyclical headaches, um, limb, sudden limb weakness, uh, fatigue. The list just went on and on and on. And every doctor just sort of scratched their head and said, we don't recognize this. We don't know what this is. And that's unfortunately very common for Canadians. Sue, does what Jennifer is saying sound a lot like what you went through? Absolutely. So I had been sick um, for 15 years with all kinds of progressive symptoms. I was a re- I am a registered nurse, and uh, I never once considered Lyme disease as a differential diagnosis. Um, so my symptoms were similar, severe fatigue, weird chest pain, uh, spontaneous floaters, things floating around in my eyes, migratory pain, a foot that would drag when I was walking, um, brain fog, memory issues. I mean, the list went on and on. And so you go to your doctor with all these issues, and they kind of look at you, and they're like, okay, you get to talk about one or two things at a time. And you're like, but I have like 10 different things going on here. Um, so it's very complex. Now, I did end up getting um, diagnosed um, in Canada for Lyme disease. I had a positive test. So um, it was a, I mean, I guess that was my, my fortune um, in that I did get a diagnosis here. Many Canadians are unable to get a diagnosis in Canada um, because our testing is, is, is quite abysmal, to say the least. Um, but it, as a result of my journey, I started doing a lot of research into Lyme disease, and that's when I came across some case reports, um, basically from the early 80s, that were acknowledging that if a mother had Lyme disease that was untreated, she could pass the infection to her baby in utero. And, of course, that was very concerning because all three of my children had been sick from birth with all kinds of strange symptoms, and nobody knew what was wrong with them. So not only is it difficult to diagnose with someone who has it, it could be something that is present in someone who's never actually been bitten by a tick, which is that, Sue, the the most common way, or is that the only way to contract Lyme disease other than what you had just found out? Well, I I believe from the literature that Lyme disease can be transferred um, from an infected mother to her baby in utero. So, yes, I believe it's an alternate mode, and it's not just me who believes it. It's clearly reported and acknowledged in the peer-reviewed literature. And actually, very interesting that in 1988, Canada Federal Public Health actually acknowledged in utero transmission. They also call it transplacental transmission. And um, there was a report that was put out in 1988, June of 1988, where they actually said transplacental transmission of Borrelia burgdorferi, which is Lyme disease, has been documented and may be associated with an adverse pregnancy outcome. And I was like, and both Jennifer and I were like, my gosh, this was documented by our own federal health authorities back in 1988, and yet nothing has been done about this for 30 years. We're talking with Sue Faber, 
and Jennifer Kravis. They are on their way to London to speak at Centennial Hall. You can check out their website. They are part of Lime Hope, and Lime is not the thing that you're squeezing into a corona. We're talking about the thing that is typically transmitted by ticks, and as both Jennifer and Sue have outlined, is very difficult for doctors to interpret and to diagnose. So both of you sound as though you're feeling okay right now. Jennifer, is that a fair statement? Are you, are you feeling okay? I'm feeling much better, and I, I was very lucky that after the six years that I spent incredibly disabled and very sick, I finally got a proper diagnosis, and I was able to pay for my own treatment uh, in the United States. I went back down to the United States. I took two years of antibiotics, and because of that, um, I have I have a life again. I can take care of my kids. I can take care of myself. I can do the work that I'm doing advocating. Many, many Canadians, that type of treatment is simply out of reach, and that's one of the prime reasons why we do what we do, because there's many people suffering without the resources to get the care they need. Jennifer, how about you and your children? Were you noticing that they may have symptoms that could be interpreted as Lyme disease? Absolutely, and many parents uh, experience this. One person in the family figures out they have Lyme disease, and all of a sudden you look at the other members of the family and start to put the pieces together. And in my case, yes, I looked at my, my daughter and thought, my gosh, she has all the symptoms that I have. And I had both my kids tested, and they both came back positive. And that's when I started to go back and look at my history and am left wondering, you know, is this possible that I pass it to my children in utero? And I think it is possible. And would you have to pass it, Jennifer, while you still had the disease present in you, or could anyone who had had Lyme disease pass this on to their children? That's a very good question. Um, so the one example would be someone with a, an acute case, like a bite, a, a, you know, a tick bite while they're pregnant and untreated and passing it to their baby, or the other case would be a person with a chronic untreated infection. So I think um, absolutely, in my case, I was a chronic, I had a chronic disseminated infection and I was pregnant and I believe I transmitted it to, to my kids in utero. Um, and, but, uh, you know, there's, it could also be that you're pregnant and you get a tick bite. Um, what we know about, about um, Lyme disease is many people don't even remember a tick even biting them. They don't have a classic bullseye rash and so people might get sick and not even know that this is what they're dealing with. So you're um, not, there's lots of issues here. You're not seeing the tick. You're not seeing this rash that we've all heard so much about. And yet you have the disease. You're experiencing the symptoms. And nobody can figure out what has gone on. We're talking right now with Sue Faber and Jennifer Kravis from Lyme Hope. Uh, Jennifer, when you speak, what is it that you want people to know? Is it simply what you've been telling us now? Does it go beyond that? What we really want people to know is that this is an issue that actually is a concern to all Canadians. First of all, because everybody is at risk. Ticks can be dropped anywhere by birds and mammals, and we know they're spreading all across Canada. Second, um, there's a lot of health care dollars being wasted because people are cycling through the health care system, going from specialist to specialist, when instead they could be being diagnosed and treated rather rapidly with, with uh, a fairly straightforward antibiotic treatment if it's caught early. Um, there's a lot of information on our website, limehope.ca, very important for Canadians to recognize the disease, and uh, unfortunately right now they have to really advocate for themselves. Sue, how do we make change? Is it uh, attaching our wagon to what you're doing through Lyme Hope? Is there anything that doctors should know, should do? Well, absolutely. Um, one of the things that I really advocate for as a nurse, I'm, I've been heavily involved with the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario, the RNAO, 
and I wrote a resolution on Lyme disease, which is available on our website. Um, but really, it's education. We need to educate frontline healthcare professionals what the typical signs and symptoms are of people who are not only just bitten by a tick with acute infection, but what people might look like who are chronically infected. And because they're, they're different presentations. Um, one thing I'd like to share about is a questionnaire called the Horowitz Questionnaire. It's, it's an excellent questionnaire, again, on our website. And it, what it does is it puts together common symptom clusters of patients like Jen and myself who have all these weird different body sim, um, symptoms and that you just you don't know what the heck is going on, but it actually puts it together and scores you and uh, give you a very good idea if there's a, a risk for tick-borne disease. Um, I think Jen would like to speak to a, an, another study that just came out, which is really important. Yeah, the other thing that people can do is um, is follow us on social media or, or sign up for updates on the website because there's a really important study coming out through Mount Allison University that we're partnering with, and it's going to be a really exciting study because it's going to be looking at um, families and it's going to be examining the possibility of congenital transmission of Lyme disease. So obviously we need very good research. We need research on issues that matter to patients, not just testing of ticks. And uh, we also need, you know, better research on uh, better tests, better treatments. Well, the fact that you are doing what you are doing is fantastic because I think very few of us understand exactly how Lyme disease is transmitted. We have all heard the the tick, the bullseye, and if you don't have that, you're not going to be looking for it. There are a lot of people with undiagnosed ailments. They can't figure out what's going on. It's very frustrating. Like you say, it's very costly for the healthcare system, and to be able to introduce this information is outstanding. So thank you. Please keep up the good work. LimeHope.ca is a website to check out as both Jen and Sue make their way to Centennial Hall to speak this afternoon. Thanks so much for the time. Thank you so much. Sue Faber, Jennifer Kravis, guests here on London Live. We're going to talk about healthcare in another extent in just a minute. I don't know if you've seen the story. This is a great reason to go to 980cfpl.ca right now or to globalnews.ca. And it is the report that has come out that shows the number of dollars per person spent across the country on healthcare. Well, in Ontario, wow. Think of all the great healthcare that we have. Must be astronomical, right? If you've been hearing any newscasts today on 980 CFPL, you know that's not the case. You know that these numbers, these numbers have a scratch in your head. We'll talk about them next. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. So we have heard a lot about the amount of money being spent on health care in Ontario. We've heard a lot about the system being broken. And again, I think it's unfair to just say health care. That's maybe the biggest problem in all of this. Because it's like saying cancer. If you say someone has cancer, you can't just leave it there. You, you have to know what type of cancer they have. It is very different. To say health care system is too much of an umbrella term. There are things that work really, really well in the Ontario healthcare system. There are other things that do not work as well in the Ontario healthcare system. And when it comes to spending money per person in Ontario, um, we're kind of falling down flat on this. 
We have seen a report that suggested a couple of years ago we were going to see great expenditures on health care. Now, remember, spending in health care is something that is very expensive very, very quickly. And the expectation was in 2017, we'd see spending at about 6600 per person per year. In 2018, we got up to about 6800 per person in Canada. So that's, that's not terrible. That's not bad. That's something that, that, you know, you know, at least there is money there if need be. And that's, that's on average. So, you know, let's face it. There are some people that are going to have more spent on them. There are some people, if you don't go to the doctor in a year, chances are we didn't spend anything on you in the entire year. But we've got a case of now Ontario has the lowest spending per person in healthcare in this country, which shouldn't make sense. But that apparently is what it's coming into. So the next question has to be, and this is one for the Ontario government to figure out, where's money going? What's happening? How come it's not filtering down to the per person level? How come other provinces have better spending per person? And we're not looking at major differences here. This is not like, well, in Ontario, we're spending $10,000 less or $5,000. No, it's not major differences here. But Ontario comes out at the bottom in this. Okay, so why? Where's this going? We can see all these numbers all we want. You've got to figure out where that money is going. And that, I hope, is the next element of this. So watch for that. One other thing I didn't get a chance to point out yesterday that I do want to make sure and point out. I don't know if you listen to podcasts, but if you do, and I'm not even being asked to do this. No one has asked me to do this. But I was driving back on a hockey bus from Sault Ste. Marie on Sunday. And I listen to a lot of podcasts. And I started listening, and there were two episodes to listen to, so I listened to both of them. But I started listening to Russia Rising, which is the one done by Jeff Semple. And he is the Global News International Bureau Chief. But this, again, has nothing to do with Jeff sending me an email saying, hey, do you want to listen to my podcast? No. Jeff and I have only spoken once on the air, I think. But I started listening to this thing. And it's fantastic. It's really well done. But I learned some things, and I'm still learning some things. I'm looking forward to the next episode. When we heard about Russian interference in the U.S. election, I don't know about you, but I thought, hey, if there was Russian interference and if that assisted in Donald Trump being elected, well, it would have been because Vladimir Putin considered Trump an ally or considered him a better bet. Well, one of the first suggestions in the podcast is that's not accurate at all. That's not what it is. Now, there are other suggestions, but I love this theory that is even presented in the first episode of Russia Rising. And it is that Vladimir Putin, it was not about getting Donald Trump elected. And we need to stop thinking like that. What the hope was in, and maybe it was Putin, maybe it was other people, who knows. What the hope was coming out of these Russian troll factories, the ones that went online and started up things on Facebook or created fake news articles. What the hope was, was simply to create all kinds of division and 
create a mess in America. That's what it was designed to do. It didn't matter which side won. It mattered that there was a mess, that there was divisiveness. And we've got that now. I don't think we've ever had a society more divided because people have been able to see, oh, well, there's a a horrific thought, but it's one that I believe in. I've been a huge racist from the time I was born, and I'm glad to see there are other people like there like me. You know, that's, that's the kind of stuff. So we have huge divides now, not just in racism, but in so many different areas. And it's disgusting, but it's true. And what Russia apparently wanted in all of this, and perhaps what Putin wanted in all of this, was this huge division, this chaos going on, so that he could point at Western democracy and say, look, you want Western democracy? Look at what it looks like. It looks like that. Or do you want what we have in Russia, managed democracy? And that that was the underlying reason for Russia getting involved in all of this. And that's something I hadn't even considered. That's why it's been a a fantastic listen so far. It's called Russia Rising. If you don't listen to it, try it. You'll like it. We'll take a break. Next up, we are going to talk about consent primarily, but we are going to go through the details of the Ryan Jarvis case, the teacher with the pen camera, and a case that had to go all the way to the Supreme Court before a conviction occurred. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Okay, got another email. This one has come in from Curtis. And it's not so much a romantic thing, it's it's a warning, I guess. Curtis, is that what you mean for this to be? Curtis emailed Mike at 980cfpl.ca, and he says, Not too long ago, my girlfriend and I broke up. And it wasn't a bad breakup. We hadn't been together long, but we did share a couple of things. I'm not talking about a child or a pet. I'm talking about a music streaming account. And when we broke up, she changed the password, even though the money is coming out of my account. And nothing seems to have changed, and she won't return my texts. Is there anything I can do to avoid spending 10... I'm sorry, I'm laughing. Is there anything I can do to avoid spending $10 a month for her to listen to all of the songs that we listened to when we were together? Ah, that's... I'm not Dear Abby. Curtis, I'd like to be able to help you out. Yeah, you... You you gotta get control of that again. If it's coming out of your account... If it's coming out of your account... Can't you cancel it? But if she's changed the password, you probably can't. Curtis, what did you do? Was it you that broke up with her? Come on, it's Valentine's Day. If Curtis's girlfriend is listening or ex-girlfriend is listening right now, or if you know her, if you know anyone named Curtis who recently broke up with her girlfriend, you get in touch with her, that's not fair. That's not nice. It's costing him 120 bucks a year. That's not fair. You got to be able to fix that. Curtis, I'm sorry to hear that. I wish I could do more for you. But uh, dear Abby, I am not. But thank you for sharing. Up next, we're going to talk about a very difficult court case that went all the way to the Supreme Court that has London ties. And we're also going to talk about a word that is very difficult to interpret. And that word is consent. How exactly do we deal with consent? In this day and age. 
If you ever have anything you want to tell us, 519-643-2222 gets you through on London Live. Before we go to break, Tom, you've got something. Can you help Curtis? Do you know Curtis's ex-girlfriend? No. Okay. But I do. I love money, and I don't like I don't like losing it. So just <laughs> tell him to freeze the account with the bank or tell the credit card to stop payment and tell him why. Yeah, you know what? I, you probably could do that, couldn't you? You'd be Absolutely. freezing your own stuff, right? But it would stop. No, no, no. no? Just tell him the account that it's going to. Yeah. And then they'll just proceed with it. He'll have a statement. All right. We weren't able to do Dear Mike, but we sure did Dear Tom. Thank you, Dear yeah. Tom. You're welcome. It's Mr. Apple by short. <laughs> Take care. Bye-bye. 519-643-2222. That's great. I didn't know you could do that. See, I'm a dummy when it comes to money. My wife does our finances. I have no idea what's going on most of the time. And if she chose Valentine's Day to say, you know what, I put up with you for 21 years, I'm out of here. Uh, I'd be lost. You know what I'd, I'd be doing? Tom, is it okay that I wrote down your phone number? I'm calling Tom. This is London Live on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. You've been hearing Jacqueline LaBelle in our 980 CFPL newsroom talk about the Ryan Jarvis situation. Ryan Jarvis, a teacher, pen camera, videos on a laptop. Eventually, this, this case went from London through the province of Ontario all the way to the Supreme Court. Well, we have a conviction in the case, a conviction on charges of voyeurism. And we need to sit back and wonder for a second, why did it take all the way to the Supreme Court to figure this out? The Supreme Court of Canada. Why? Why did it take that long to realize that... We had a case of voyeurism here. Do we have problems with how we term voyeurism, with how we understand things? Well, let's investigate this with someone who deals with things like this on not necessarily an everyday basis or a regular basis, but does think about what all of this means. Joining us right now, we're lucky to have with us Barb McQuarrie, who is the Community Director of the Center for Research and Education in Women and Children in the Faculty of Education at Western University. Barb, it is great to have you with us, but again, people are wondering why this case had to go as far as the Supreme Court. We certainly do have people wondering that, and, and I am one of those people on you know, this is really, for most of us, such a common sense case. So it's certainly with a, a sense of relief uh, and gratitude that we get the ruling today, but also there's still that wondering of what were those lower courts thinking? And in terms of, of looking at it in that way, do you have faith that they may review something like this and say, okay, how, how come this had to go to the highest of heights before we got the finality and, and the decision that did finally come? Uh, well, uh, absolutely. I mean, I think we have a lot of clarification now um, on the uh, voyeurs and laws um, in Canada, we understand clearly that they are intended to protect our bodily, our sexual integrity, no matter where we are. So we don't have to be in an intimate space like a washroom or, or a bedroom for these laws to apply. Our our bodily and sexual integrity 
um, is to be protected when we're at school, when we're at work, when we're out shopping, we're at church, we're at religious institutions. It doesn't matter where we are. Um, that I mean, I, so absolutely, this ruling is going to send a clear message all the way down, all the way through our, our legal system about how our laws are to be um, interpreted. We are talking right now with Barb McQuarrie, who is the community director of the Center for Research and Education on Violence Against Women and Children in the Faculty of Education at Western University. And we are looking at the Ryan Jarvis case. And the Ryan Jarvis case involved allegations at the time of voyeurism, that there had been 27 students filmed who should have had an expectation of privacy. Uh, You mentioned, Barb, just the idea that that we have you know voyeurism laws we have rules but how how far along are these have we had enough cases to truly shape this or is it something like this that actually assists in shaping that well something like this did assist in shaping that um although i'm not sure we you know it should have been clear it wasn't clear for whatever reason to to lower courts as we've said um but the you know the the law, the voyeurism law, was updated to reflect the fact that we have a lot of new technology, and that our um, privacy is constantly threatened by that new technology. And so, one of the lower court rulings really didn't distinguish between the trade-off we may between we make between our right to privacy and our right to security. And so, you know, we have a lot of cameras everywhere for security reasons. And we've accepted that. You know, collective, we, we've said we understand that we lose some privacy. We understand that we gain some security, and we'll take the security gain. We didn't agree to giving up our 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 bodily uh, personal space in that deal. We didn't say so now. You know, you can zoom in on young women's breasts, and that will be okay. That wasn't part of that deal we made, and this ruling makes that very very clear. And you bring up an excellent point because, yeah, we, we could be filming something on our phone. You could be filming your son or your daughter taking their first steps and something's going on in the background. And, and how much of an expectation of privacy should you have in a case like that if you're the person doing something in the background? With regard to this, is is there still gray area that needs to be dealt with? Is there or does it simply come down to hopefully good old fashioned common? sense. I think we are swinging back towards common sense. I, I think that the, the, the judgment has been very clear. I think that um, the idea that we have, again, we have uh, a right to bodily autonomy. We have a right to control. We, this goes back to that basic concept of consent. You know, consent isn't just about sexual activity. Consent is about who who has access to my body and who doesn't and in what ways. So I think this ruling, ruling, which, you know, it's not always true of the justice system, but it is a common sense ruling. It does resonate with what we as ordinary people um, understand and is the expectations when we step outside of our home um, about, you know, who is going to have access to our body. It reinforces all of those common sense notions. 
We're talking with Barb McQuarrie, Community Director of the Center for Research and Education on Violence Against Women and Children in the Faculty of Education at Western University. And we are talking about the Supreme Court ruling and conviction in the Ryan Jarvis case in which you had videos found on Jarvis's computer that, again, go to that expectation of privacy. Should he have been able to do what he was doing with a pen camera, of all things, that he would have in a classroom of all places? Now, you bring up consent, and Barb, maybe while we're talking about this, it's really useful to explore that a little bit more, because how much would you say the term consent has changed, even in very recent history? Um, you know, we have had, and I, I should clarify, you know, consent wasn't the concept that was used in this ruling, but it resonates with consent, and it agrees with that understanding of consent that we have elsewhere in our legal system as well as in our social norms. So we've actually had consent very well defined in our criminal code. Um, we've had a very good, solid definition of consent. We don't always, I think, see that reflected in legal decisions, and we certainly haven't always understood consent in the most full way, even in our social interactions, until, uh, frankly, the, the rise of the Me Too movement. But with the rise of the Me Too movement, it has really forced us to have a a uh, clear look at consent and to delve into what that means and to what that understand and, and to how we understand that. So definitely socially we are evolving our understanding of consent and we are understanding that um, you know what women's advocates have understood and, and and been saying for a long time, consent is not just a lack of saying um, no. Consent really means that you have to have clear communication and you have to have clear and uh, and enthusiastic agreement to any kind of activity that's going to involve someone else's body or, 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 or sexual activity. So we... Yes, I, we are evolving our concept of consent in what I think is a very healthy way um, and a very important way. I think of teenagers. I think of young people. I think of the fact that they're less likely to be in a long-term relationship and still trying to figure out what is right, what is wrong, what is acceptable, what is consent. What advice do you give to young people to make sure that they do understand that communication? that they are carrying things out in the right way? Um, so there's a, there's a few basics, and, and one is, is that remember that if somebody is under the influence of alcohol or drugs, they are not capable of giving consent. Um, and, and it doesn't matter if somebody has consented to sexual activity before they were drinking or before they were under the influence of drugs. Um, as soon as they're under the influence of alcohol and drugs, they have no capacity for consent. That's a really key one to remember. So we do not want to either um, willingly exploit someone when they're under the influence of alcohol or drugs, and we don't also want to make mistakes and make assumptions when somebody is under the influence of alcohol or drugs. So that's a really key one. Um, I think what I would say is that we have to learn how to communicate with each other 
much more clearly and much more openly. And so if somebody doesn't say no to you, they haven't said yes. They haven't said okay. They haven't said I want to do that. We have to learn how to talk. We have to learn how to check in. We have to learn how to make sure that our partners really are fully uh, willing and and wanting to be engaged in in the activity in in sexual activities. Any more you have phones at your disposal, you would almost have a a consent form. We're used to doing that. If if we're going to go and jump around in a trampoline park, I'm signing that yes, I understand the risks. That yes, I understand what I'm going to be doing, and and that's what we have. Are we at that point in society where you need to video a consent from somebody if they're not under the influence of alcohol and and drugs in order to be able to say, yes, this is what we did? I hope that we're not not there, and I'm not in favor of of that kind of very formalized um, consent. I think it takes away from the relational aspect of consent. And so I think that learning to communicate openly and honestly with each other strengthens trust and strengthens relationships. I think that that kind of formal contractual uh, agreement that you're talking about I, I think that that is, takes us in a different direction where we don't trust each other. And I also would say because uh, the nature of a, a sexual relationship or a sexual encounter is so dynamic that you can have consent. You can have signed form consent in one moment and then the person can change their mind and you no longer have consent and that form is completely invalid. So I don't see that as as a useful direction. I really, really think it's the open communication. That's where we need to be heading. Well, I really appreciate all your time and all your insight on this, Barb. Thank you so much. Oh, you're very welcome. That is Barb McQuarrie. Barb is the community director of the Center for Research and Education in Women and Children and the Faculty of Education at Western University. So a great person to weigh in on this and turn it into some talk about consent. It's it's a difficult issue. It should be common sense. But what is common sense to one person is not common sense to another. That's why she stresses that communication. You've got to have it. But you also have to be able to say, you know what, this person has the right to change their mind partway through. This person has the right to maybe say something and mean it the way they interpreted it, but not the way you interpreted it. And that's why you want to be a happily married person at this time or or a happily together with somebody else Kind of per- Is that why? I mean, navigating the waters of consent, I could see that being a very, very difficult thing. That's why you, what, you, you tread slowly. Don't be doing, who was it? It was Steve earlier that, that emailed in about the blow-up mattress and the roses. And Be careful, Steve. Just slow this down. Before we put a blow-up mattress in a man shed and cover it with flower petals, you got to have a conversation. Happy Valentine's Day. We're going to come back and close out the show in a moment. This is London Live on Global News Radio, 980 CFPL.
I have to answer a question because I just got another question about it. I've been answering this question all week. When I was talking about my pillow, I mentioned a three-legged cat. I have a three-legged cat. I really do. I'll tweet out a picture and you can see why the cat probably could use a my pillow. Uh, you'll see what I mean. You can find that at Stubbs980 in just a second or two. It's a picture of the cat leaning against basically a ledge, sleeping. Not overly comfortable. Thanks to Matt McInnes for all of his help today. London Live, brought to you by our friends at Winmar, your restoration specialist. Do enjoy your Valentine's Day. News is next. This has been London Live on Global News Radio, 980 CFPL.